Hello, welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent, recording this episode in November 2023. This episode is about philosophy of mind, and in particular, substance dualism. So we'll be thinking about what dualism is in general, we'll focus on substance dualism in particular, and think about various issues that substance dualism faces. And we'll also see what else we get onto, as always. Joining me in this episode, we have Ben Jones, who teaches philosophy at King Edward VI Form College in Starbridge. Hi, Ben. Hi, yeah. Good to be back. Hello, everybody. And we've got Dan McKee, who teaches philosophy at Warwick School. Hi, Dan. Hi, everyone. Nice to be here. And we've got Mabel Rowe, who teaches philosophy and religious studies at Barton Court Grammar School in Canterbury. Hi, Mabel. Hi, Simon. Thank you for having me back. Uh, It's great to have all three of you with us. Okay, so we're going to talk about a significant position within philosophy of mind, namely substance dualism. Substance dualism and other dualisms appear on the AQA A-level philosophy specification uh, in the Metaphysics of Mind unit, and that's what we're basing our discussion around. But if you're thinking about studying philosophy at university, no matter what you're doing at A-level or IB or hires, it's worth listening to. This is one of a series of Philosophy of Mind podcasts I'm running, including uh, some just on dualism. Uh, So please do check the others out as well. Okay, so let's start with a basic definition of dualism. Um, Do you want to set the scene, Dan, and talk about philosophy of mind in general for us so we can lead into dualism and then into substance dualism, please? Yeah, philosophy of mind is this, you know, it's a really great thing. I always I always say to students, this is the one bit of the course where I pretty much change my view on what I think about it every year, depending on the way the, the arguments seem to go and, and the vibe about it, because it's such an important issue. You know, what is a mind? We've all got one theoretically. We all talk about the word, you know, all the time. We use it in philosophy of ideas and thought and um we use it at school where we're educating young minds a lot of the time and it's this word that we use that we assume we all know what it is when we talk about it but what i really love about this is it just raises all these problems with most of our kind of conventional uh, uses of the word and the, the the things we think about when we when we think about mind so um you know we've got questions to ask is the mind the brain is sort of that big big question at the sort of heart of philosophy of mind because we know we've got a brain we've we've seen them in scans we we've know what happens if you remove them people die they injure them they they change parts of themselves there seems to be a real close connection but at the same time there seems to be things about the mental life about consciousness about what it's like to be thinking and feeling and experiencing conscious thought that doesn't seem to fall into the physical picture that everything else does and then there's this whole idea that maybe all we're talking about with mind is something linguistic that that it's just a sort of conceptual framework for certain ideas that we have that we categorize as mental and and it's just a sort of way of talking about a certain type of thing so there's like ways in philosophy of mind of looking at it purely linguistically of looking at biology what's true about the the brain and the body and and what thought is uh, chemically and and biologically but then there's these sort of metaphysical questions of does all that make sense with our sort of intuitions about mind and what dualism is 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 one of the big questions you know is what exists in the world is 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 there just one thing like a brain maybe or just one thing like thoughts Uh, that could be the one thing if you think back to epistemology as a topic you know idealism is this idea that there's just thoughts so is there just thinking and, and ideas or is there just physical stuff or are there maybe two things in in the world? Is there uh, a dualism? Are there 
thoughts and physical things. And then you raise all these new questions of if there are these two things and they're different, sort of how do they work together? How do they fit together, interact, cause things to happen with each other? There's also this element, which I think is worth pointing out at the start of any discussion of philosophy of mind, uh, certainly with dualism, that there's this long sort of religious history of the soul. And a lot of certainly students, when they talk about, you know, what is there? Is there one thing? Is there two things? two things some students will say there's three things there's the body there's the mind and there's the soul and there's this there's this other thing this third thing um, which is also true in lots of philosophies of mind um, from non-western traditions as well this idea that there's a sort of a, a mental life a spiritual life a physical life and somehow these things all come together but i would say for for, for that on the spec talking about this this topic um there's lots of bits where it says you know without reference to god so don't i would say if you're a student and you're thinking about soul leave soul to the side when it comes to this particular course and this particular spec and sort of equate soul and thinking and mind and just just focus on this concept of mind because i think sometimes students sort of get confused and start talking about souls when they mean minds and just focus on this idea of mind so philosophy of mind is really that question of, of what is it this thing that we think we have do we even have it and if we do have it how what is it and how does it interact with our body that's great. Thanks so much, Dan. So now we've set the scene and thought about philosophy of mind and dualism. So Mabel, do you want to continue the story and talk to us about substance dualism, please? Well, will indeed. Thank you. So I think as well, I'll, I'll pick up on what Dan said there as well about the soul, because I think to understand substance dualism well, you need to actually understand what soul means to Descartes. And linking back to, again, what Dan said about epistemology, when we look at metaphysics of mind, when Descartes was writing, it was epistemology of mind. It's obviously changed in recent years because we've got more of an understanding of physics and going beyond the physics. And um, in later episodes uh, with Simon, you'll be looking at these things like elimination and mind-brain type identity theory. You'll be looking at um, the physics of the mind. But when it comes to Descartes, he actually heavily links the soul and the spiritual to the mental. So substance dualism, it has dualism as a whole has its roots back to Plato and ancient Greek uh, Greece again in epistemology where you looked at Plato's cave and you had the essence and the oozier and things like that. That heavily comes in. But when we talk about substance dualism, we're particularly talking about Cartesian dualism. So the dualism of Descartes. And Descartes sets out, let's go back to epistemology last year, students. You've got his doubts and the three things that he knows, axioms, he is thinking, and God. So really, those things really come into his theory on dualism and what he is. Okay, So he thinks that there are things that are purely matter. Those will be things like rocks, the table, chairs, purely matter. And then you have things that are purely mind or purely existing in the spiritual realm, as Descartes calls it. And they will be God is purely mind. He's purely spiritual. He's in that to Descartes, they're kind of one in the same. The spiritual realm is where the mind is. It's also where God is. And then the physical realm, that's where your extended body is. It's where the table is. It's where the rocks are. So to understand this, and when you make the arguments, talking about the background of Descartes' theism is really quite powerful because he's coming from that place. He's building his argument based on the premise that there is a purely spiritual thing that exists with God. And so looking 
from that aspect is is quite powerful when you're making these arguments because you can link it to epistemology and you'll get those higher marks in your logical form. So as said, substance dualism is that there are purely physical things and purely mental things. To Descartes, obviously, when we talk about people, and it's important to know only people have the mind, animals, things like that, don't. Whether that falls into a chauvinistic issue um, is debatable, but it is to Descartes just humans. So he believes we have an extended body that is purely matter. So your arms reaching out in space right now, that's extended. You're extended. You're taking up space in the world. And then you have the purely mental. That's your thoughts, feelings, uh, in many ways, your motivation. And those don't take up any space. They're not extended. They are purely thinking. And he said these were distinct substances. And because they were distinct, they can be separated. And again, a separation between substance dualism and when you look at property dualism is that to substance dualism, the mind doesn't depend on the body. Because again, Descartes, coming from that space of spirituality, coming from that space of there is a heaven, where does the mind go when the body dies? Well, it goes to heaven with God. So, you know, for Descartes, the mind can be separated from the body and it is separated from the body at the point of death. So these are all of the points that he's kind of building on when coming up with his theory. But what is very important is that the mind and body interact. Uh, that's great. Thanks, Mabel, for setting the scene there and continuing what, what Dan did for us. So there we are. We've got um, the idea of mind and dualism and now lots of detail about substance dualism uh, and clearly Descartes looming large, not just in the history of philosophy of mind, but also on our, on our specification. But so far, we haven't got any arguments on the table. And so there are two major arguments that Descartes gives. They're on the spec. Um, so we're going to come on to conceivability in a little while. But first of all, we're going to think about indivisibility. Ben, why don't you explain this for us, please? Okay. I mean, this works really well because this follows on brilliantly for from what Mabel was saying there. I think that there's that whole background there allows us to kind of move pretty quickly onto the arguments. And I think I think one of the things that to to kind of bring in, and the reason why it was so good that Mabel covered all that was because these arguments appear in the middle of a book. Uh, they don't, you know, or, or scattered throughout a book. Uh, they're not kind of like standalone things. Like the rest of Descartes' philosophy, it's all this kind of neatly interwoven or step-by-step procedure to work from step one through to the end to try and prove a whole bunch of stuff so it's really hard to look at these arguments in isolation and give them their full credit so i think students should use their knowledge of things like rationalism and the interest in deduction thesis from the first year and any of the stuff on skepticism that they know to kind of build a build a picture of what descartes trying to do and of course, all of this stems out of the cogito. It all, it all stems out of this idea that Descartes believes that at the point at which you assert that you exist, you know that you exist. But of course, what he adds into that is that the point at which you assert that you exist and you know that you exist at that point, kind of intuitively know it, that doesn't mean that you know that anything else exists. It doesn't mean that you know that the world around you exists or even your hands in front of your face exist. Um, what you know is that 
at that point in time, there is a thinking thing which is in existence. And he hasn't yet established that these thing, you know, this thing is going to exist through time in any particular way, that it's going to have this kind of, or it's going to have any of the features that he's going to end up believing that it has later on. So these arguments are kind of like building out of that original set of ideas and arguments and things that he's produced earlier on in the book. With the indivisibility argument, it's kind of the one of the neatest little arguments with one of the you know, you'll find a lot of the textbooks making reference to Leibniz's law here. So it's got kind of like a big philosophical principle behind it, even though it's a really neat, simple argument that I think anybody can understand. So his first point is, <clears throat> when I introspect, that's the only way that I can really know about the, the mind. I find that my mind has certain qualities, like it, um, you know, it, it doesn't appear to be divisible is one of those. Now, let's put that into contrast with the body, where he says, when I think about the body, that is something which I do understand to be divisible. I can break it up into parts. He says the bodies can even be just divided in thought. It's not that you have that you can actually break up a body with your hands. It might be that you haven't got the physical ability to be able to do that. But you can easily imagine something being broken in half and broken in half and broken in half and broken in half over and over again. Now, he says that that is something which is true of physical objects. It's true of the body, in fact, is what he keeps sort of saying in the paragraph where he discusses this. And he says that, but then when I introspect and I think about my my mind, my soul, I don't find any parts. I find it to be a kind of complete, what we would call kind of atomistic, kind of you can't cut it up, you can't divide it whole thing. And he says, I do find different faculties that my mind has. So I obviously know that my mind has memory and it has imagination and things, but that's not the same as the mind having parts. It's just different things that the mind does. It's not different component bits. It's not like my body has an arm or, you know, has arms and legs. And furthermore, again, he says that, you know, I can, I can easily lose an arm and a leg without it having any effect on the mind itself, that the dividing one doesn't necessarily mean dividing the other. And so, it's, um, his argument is ultimately if these two things don't share the same properties, they can't be the same thing. If they were the same thing, they would share the same properties. And this is effectively him using what would be much later down the line, trying to get the chronology right, later down the line, you've got Leibniz's law, which is just taking the basic underlying principle he's using here and turning it into something kind of technical and philosophical, which is simply the idea that if two things are identical, then they're going to share all the same properties. What is true of one is going to be true of the other. And there isn't going to be anything which is true of one, which is false of the other. So my mind is indivisible, is true of my mind, but being indivisible is false when you state it about your body. Therefore, they can't be the same thing. So Leibniz's law is actually just a really straightforward uh, kind of rule, really. It's a philosophical rule, but it's just the idea that where things are different, they're not the same. Where there's one thing which is true of something and false of another, they're not the same thing. Um, and he gets a lot of credit for that. So get into philosophy because you can you can earn yourself a lot of cash and a lot of fame off, off, point, off giving a fancy name to something like that. But that's the main idea. He says that they can't be the same thing because one's indivisible and one isn't. And therefore, if they were both indivisible or they were both divisible, I'd have a reason to believe that they were the same. But they're not. So they must be separate. I was just going to say, you know, Ben says this is a nice little neat argument, and it is. It's it, it's it's neatness is a real benefit of it. 
but it also is beneficial as an argument for learning how to do good sort of argument and counter argument because it gives you quite a clear path of how to attack it because if it's true that you know these two things uh, are different because one is indivisible and one is divisible and that's the difference if we can show that that difference is not true that it doesn't exist then um the argument kind of comes undone so if you could show that the body is in fact somehow indivisible or that the mind is in somehow uh, divisible then that sort of split that Descartes says is there comes undone so the way really you want to kind of attack it is by trying to do that and, and showing you know can I find that actually the mental might be divisible in some way or that not everything that's physical is divisible and then we've got some sort of evidence that you could have a indivisible physical thing so really that's that's the approach and i mean i guess the thing to start with might be that idea that you know could the mental be actually divisible in some way i guess it depends on your your concept of mind and that's another kind of secret argument the two on the spec are that you know is is the mental uh, actually divisible in some way or are there physical things that could be divisible but the thing um sorry or physical things that are indivisible but behind it all is like there's a real sort of fallacy going on that that descartes is begging the question here about these things we've seen that he's he's got this conception he's got this idea but if we bring that idea back that i said at the start of you know is the mind the brain well if the mind is the brain uh which descartes doesn't accept at this point because he's got his his arguments why he's made them distinct then we would have this thinking stuff is divisible because physical things are divisible and you can chop a brain up. And so we've already, with that one example of possibly we smuggled in that that a thinking thing could be divisible if it was a brain. He hasn't necessarily proven it's not the brain. He's just got this sort of thought that he doesn't think it is, which maybe is smuggling in a sort of uh, assumption too many in there. But you know, you could look at mental in this concept of what is the mind and, and say, well, actually, is it as indivisible as Descartes says? We've got all kinds of mental illnesses where people have things like split personalities and stuff that you might consider a, a divided mind in some ways. Um, you've got people like David Hume who sort of says, well, there is no singular self. There's just this bundle of perceptions and things like that. So there's not even a a singular mind there's just lots of things which seems very divisible if i'm if i'm a bundle i can become unbundled so that's just one example you know if, if you can find a divisible example of the mental then suddenly this is not leibniz's law in action because well the mental can be divisible and the physical can be divisible so they might be the same He's he's one of those where on the spec you can say he was argument of best explanation at the time but quite frankly his uh his theory here does not stand up to the test of time, unfortunately, but his his legacy continues. I would add the, uh, so to the not everything thought of as physical is divisible. Um, I would add quite a quite an easy one with that is to think of uh, subatomic particles, you know, sub quarks, for instance, we, we don't think you can get much smaller. And, and logically, there would be a case where you wouldn't be able to get any smaller. So a really easy example with uh, a uh, physical is not divisible in some way are these subatomic particles. Uh, And that's much easier to attack than, you know, going into DID and various mental illnesses, because I know quite a lot of my students do 
psychology as well. So they find it much easier to go into that and talk about split brain and, and whatever. But uh, the students who don't do psychology find that much more difficult to go into. Um, I think another thing that you can always use, as Dan says, your best essays are the concise ones that attack the premises, because by attacking the premises, you, you take away the validity and the, the soundness of an argument. Is You could also talk about the fact that Leibniz did not think that you could use his law in this way. You know, Leibniz could be argued to be uh, the father of property dualism in a way for his philosophy, uh, philosophy of mind. Um, contributions, but he definitely was was not of the Cartesian view. He thought his law could not be used to prove the distinctness of the mind and brain. So you can attack Leibniz's law as kind of a foundation of Descartes' argument to begin with, and then you've got a really, you know, sound argument that you're making there, and it can be very concise and, and punchy. Great. Thanks, Mabel. Uh, it's really helpful. And thanks to, to all of you. Um, okay, so we've had our introduction to philosophy of mind and to dualism. And we've got substance dualism on the table, particularly Descartes' version. Uh, and we've just heard about the indivisibility argument. Um, let's take a break there. And then we'll see you in the next part where we think about Descartes' conceivability argument and think about problems that substance dualism faces. And welcome back. Before we move into this segment, just to remind you to check out all our other episodes. We've got many episodes on all aspects of ethics and moral philosophy, epistemology, philosophy, religion, and new for autumn 2023, philosophy of mind. We hope we'll be covering other topics soon too, such as stretch topics and philosophers not on the spec. So we've introduced the idea of substance dualism, and we've got one of Descartes' arguments on the table. Um, we now need to think about the other main major argument that's mentioned on the specification, namely the conceivability argument. So, Mabel, do you want to explain this for us, please? The conceivability argument as a whole basically just says, if I can conceive of it uh, logically, without a logical contradiction, um, then it must be possible. The reason to talk about it separately is because it does come up uh, when you look at property dualism, it comes up when you look at philosophical zombies, which uh, um, will be discussed on another podcast. But for, for this one, what is just really important is that it's that idea of conceiving of something without a logical contradiction. To put this into perspective for you, if I told the listeners right now to think of a three-sided square, you would be thinking of a triangle. So that's it. You cannot conceive of it. You can't make the image in your mind. Okay, so that's that's kind of at the base of this conceivability argument. And the idea of a logical contradiction is very important. Okay, so Descartes uses this in his theory of the mind because he talks about the fact that he can clearly and distinctly uh, conceive of the essential nature. So he calls it the essential nature of the mind and body being different things. And because he can clearly and distinctly conceive of it, they must be separate because there is no logical contradiction. So it goes like this. I have a clear and distinct idea of myself, meaning the mind, as something that is purely thinking and unextended. So it doesn't take up any space. 
Premise two, I have a clear and distinct idea of my body being extended into space, but not thinking. If I can clearly and distinctly conceive of the essential natures of two things being separate, it must be possible to separate them. Okay, so therefore the mind and body can exist independent from each other. Uh, therefore, the mind and the body must be two distinct substances. Um, Descartes chucks in uh, some God. So uh, he does say that if he can clearly and distinctly think of the essential natures of two things being separate, that means God can create it in a way that corresponds with my thoughts of those things. So mind being unextended and thinking, body being extended and unthinking. Uh, therefore, God can create a mind as something that thinks and is unextended. So he, he brings God in, but you don't need God uh, in your arguments. But you might see, you know, some extra premises, some extra conclusions coming in that mention God. But as uh, Dan said right at the beginning, it's very important to not get confused with kind of maybe your intuitive idea of a soul and Descartes' idea of the mind. Okay, so separating God is sometimes what you need to do for the exam spec. That's great. Thanks very much, Mabel. So that's the argument explained. Um, but there are some issues with it, aren't there, Ben? Do you want to take us through them, please? Yeah, there's, there's three issues, really, and you can kind of follow them through in a in a logical order. If if Descartes is presenting this argument to you, there's probably a series of questions or a bunch of questions that would arise that you would want to ask Descartes or that you would want to consider yourself as somebody accepting these arguments. So <clears throat> we've done it in class and things, you know, you, you'll have done it in class where you go through the premises one by one and you kind of say, no, do we accept this premise? Is there a reason to reject it? And so on. But sometimes actually you do that with kind of underlying things as well. So kind of underlying assumptions that might be behind the argument. So one of the first things that we can talk about is I can conceive of the essences of two things being distinct. And the first question is, is it actually conceivable to think of a mind without a body? We can understand a body without a mind. That's really, really straightforward. You just think of a rock or a table or things we talked about earlier. But can I imagine um, and conceive of a mind without a body? Now, that, that idea of logical contradiction that Mabel mentioned there is going to be kind of important when we when we think of this, so Descartes has said, well, there's nothing logically contradictory within the idea of having a mind without a body. And that's fine. That's because my my concept of mind doesn't entail the concept of body and my concept of body doesn't entail the concept of mind on a conceptual level. But that doesn't necessarily mean um, that I can genuinely conceive of those two things being separated. So we can think of some fairly straightforward examples of this, I think. So when people talk about things like out-of-body experiences and stuff like that, so they'll say things like, I was on the operating table, and then I, I, my mind left my body, my soul left my body, and I was looking down on the room and looking at my body and looking at the doctors. What's worth thinking about here is that the mind is meant to be something which is non-physical. That is, it doesn't have any extension in space. But here we appear to be saying that something which isn't extended in space could not only have a position in space, but it could also have an orientation. That is, it's facing downwards rather than upwards. Now, if this isn't a physical thing and it doesn't have eyes, 
how does it see things and how does it look down as opposed to looking up? How could it, if it wanted to look up, would it have to rotate? And if it does rotate, how could it rotate in space if it's not physical? The point is not so much that there's this sort of general sort of criticism of dualism, but that when I conceive of my mind, I'm already conceiving of a mind with a body. It's I cannot conceive of what my mind is like distinct from being embodied, being something with senses, something with um, an understanding of the outside world. You'd have to think of a kind of pure stripped away consciousness to actually think of the mind without body, because not even Descartes doing that, really. When he talks about the cogito, he's not thinking about the mind without the body. He's just thinking of a mind in a body. He's just paying more attention to the mind at that point in time. So we don't at this idea that it's actually conceivable to think of a mind without a body or the mind and body being separated. If he just means logical contradiction, that's fine. We'll move on to kind of thinking about that next. But if he means actually conceivable in the way that I can imagine that my house was a different shape or that my room was a different color or that the moon traveled in a different direction through the sky, then no, I don't seem to be able to conceive it on that level. So the second question is, if we've accepted that we think it's a logical contradiction, it's not a logical contradiction, sorry, and that's enough to say that it's conceivable. The next question is, well, just because it's conceivable, does that make it possible? Now, the realm of possibility he's talking about here, like the sphere of possibility he's talking about, is more than just a straightforward, what is it possible for me to do? Like we kind of mentioned a little bit earlier there. What, what is it possible for me to, you know, and what is it possible for me to divide in space we were talking about earlier? We're not talking about that. We're actually talking about what we call metaphysical possibility. That is, I'm not talking about what's necessarily actually possible right here, right now, but what is in the realms of what could ever be possible under a possible infinity of circumstances? Now, this isn't you know, an easy concept to get your head around, but think about the idea that if something is logically contradictory, then it's impossible. Which means that the alternative is that if it's not logically contradictory, then it is possible. That's just how the logic works. It's either impossible or it's possible, which also then goes as far as to be necessary. But that's a, a neat way. It's either, it's either not possible or, or it is possible. Now, if we're talking about possibility, I could say that there are certain things that are possible within this world, within the world in which we currently live. But there are also things which we would consider to be possible in as much as while they might not be true in this world or possible within this world, if things had turned out differently, that is, if the laws of nature had been slightly different or if God had decided to pick something different to, uh, you know, to, to create, or if one of the variables was slightly different after the Big Bang, then maybe things would have turned out differently. So I've mentioned things like the moon traveling in a different direction in the sky. Maybe there's a universe, a way in which the universe was set up so that actually in that universe, the moon does travel in a different direction in the sky. In fact, to be honest, like we talk about this really weird, talking about, you know, Kripke and David Lewis and all these sorts of people that are Leibniz, all these people that talk about it. Most students will be aware of this from thinking about the multiverse in basically every bit of sci-fi 
nowadays when they run out of ideas is that they just go, hey, wouldn't it be amazing if there were all these billions and billions and, and this infinity of parallel universes where every possibility could have taken place? Right. That's what we mean by possible worlds. That's ultimately what we mean by metaphysical possibility. Is it that one of these things could have happened in one of those possible worlds, in which case it's metaphysically possible? Or if it's logically contradictory by its very nature, it couldn't have happened in any of those possible worlds. There would never be a world where two plus two equals nine. There would never be a world where triangles have four sides. Or, you know, if you just want to, people want to debate about the use of the word triangle, oh, it's, it's just what we call a triangle. Yeah, all right. A world where a three sided shape didn't have three sides. No, they'd be logically contradictory. The point is that it doesn't matter how or the argument goes, it doesn't matter how conceivable something is, it doesn't necessarily tell you whether or not it's metaphysically possible, because that can largely be down to our own limitations in our understanding. So we can argue, and I think this was a point that was made in the in the in the last section, that actually we shouldn't think that Descartes conceiving or not conceiving of something is any indication of what that thing is really like or what it could be like in any possible universe so just because something's conceivable doesn't mean it's possible in some possible universe so the the example given by one of one of Descartes contemporaries I think Arno was that if you have somebody who doesn't really understand geometry then they can conceive of a triangle that doesn't follow Pythagoras's theorem or they can think of a, a triangle where its internal angles do not add up to 180 degrees. And they can conceive of that. They can say, yeah, I can imagine that. I can conceive of that. But technically, they shouldn't be able to because that's not true of triangles. That's, that would be contradictory of triangles. But just because something's contradictory to us when we know it, it doesn't mean that when you don't know it, that you don't think that that thing's conceivable. So we just have to imagine that somebody as smart as they can't might think that something's really conceivable. I can conceive of a mind and body being distinct without any sort of logical contradiction until he gains the bit of information that proves that otherwise. So if we get down to that idea that we've 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 asked, is it actually conceivable? If it is conceivable, would that make it possible in some possible world? And then, well, if it is possible in some possible world, what does it tell us about this universe? Because one of the things that I think students ask, and I know that certain philosophers ask, Patricia Churchland is quite vocal about this frequently, is the is the idea that even if I come up with a, an account of metaphysical possibility and say, is it metaphysically possible that the mind could be separated from the body? The reply would be, who cares? Is it possible within this universe? Like, you know, if, for example, is it possible that the moon could travel backwards in the sky? Well, um, not in this universe, no. Well, could it in some universe? Who cares? That universe doesn't exist. Or if it does, we don't live in it and never will be. So, you know, never will. So the point is that even the metaphysical possibility doesn't tell us what's actually possible within this world. Because unless there's a good reason to believe it, I guess, unless there's kind of like a really strong argument against it, we might live in one of the many possible, maybe infinite universes um, along with the infinite universes where you can separate mind from body, where we happen to live in one of the ones where you can't separate mind. Maybe there are universes like that. So how do we know? 
And this is where, obviously, the physicalists are going to start stepping in and going, well, it's because you actually have to look at whether what happens when you mess with the brain. You actually have to look at how the mind works empirically to actually see which one of those worlds you might be in. And unfortunately, just saying, well, there might be a universe where you could separate the mind and brain. So that probably tells us something about this universe. And it doesn't any more than any of those crazy enter the multiverse kind of things tell you anything about this current one. So those are the three questions you should ask. Is it conceivable? If it's conceivable, does that make it metaphysically possible? And even if it is metaphysically possible, does that make it actually the case in this world? And I think that sometimes students kind of lose it along one of those steps. That's really great. Thanks, Ben, for explaining that. And I should say, students, uh, I mean, I'm a professional philosopher, and I think the stuff about metaphysical possibility is probably the single hardest thing on the entire spec. Uh, so well done, Ben, for explaining that. <laughs> um, Thank you, the Marvel multiverse. <laughs> so we're going to do some evaluation, students, at the end of this segment. But before we do all of that... Should we go through some other issues? Because there are some other issues that we can think about regarding substance dualism. And I think, Dan, you're going to take us through problem of other minds, first of all. Yeah. Um, so one of the things, if we accept that, that Descartes has, has, has proven that there are these two things and they're separate and we've got two separate substances, we also know Descartes starts this whole journey, um, as Mabel said, right back at the beginning, with the, the cogito and sort of you know, he, he can prove that he exists. He he thinks this is all about sort of introspection of his conscious experience and him sort of knowing that he thinks, therefore he exists. He's a thinking thing. And that's great. You know, he, he might have proven that he's a thinking thing. He's got this body. They're not the same thing. And therefore, there are these two things that exist. But if that's going to be our basis for saying that that is what the mind is, we have this big problem of how do I know anyone but me has a mind? If I am a substance dualist, I can introspectively look at my own thoughts and, and I know from Descartes' arguments they're not the same thing as my body, my brain. But when I look at you, I can only see these physical things, these external things. If I cut you open in an operating theatre to like look at your brain area, I wouldn't find, by Descartes' own argument, anything because it's not extended, this thinking thing that exists. So it's not a physical thing that I can find using any of my you know, physical senses, uh, back to what Ben was saying about is the mind even conceivable without a body because uh, you know, there's nothing physical for me, to, for me to latch onto. So I can't really sort of prove anyone but myself has a mind because what substance dualism does, if it's successful, is successfully detach any of those physical things that I can perceive or, or look at from anything to do with the mental conscious life so all i'm left with is the physical shell the possibility that you're maybe one of the philosophical zombies that we'll be looking at in, in another episode um and that's a big problem because obviously i want to be able to say someone else uh, is has consciousness i mean it's also worth pointing out one of the reasons philosophy of mind is maybe important is this question of what is a mind also then links to what is valuable about a mind. And a lot of our moral intuitions sort of come from the idea that there are conscious beings that we owe things to and that maybe we should and shouldn't do things to. 
So we see this with our treatment of animals. Part of our thinking about the treatment of animals is based on some concept that in some way their mind or sense of self is, is not the same as the humans and it shouldn't be prioritized in the same way. Well, if Descartes right, I don't know that you've got a mind. So I don't know that you should be prioritized in the same way. I don't know that I have the same obligations to you because maybe you're not a conscious being. Maybe you're just a sort of uh, automaton. So um, it's a big problem. And it seems that you sort of, if you win the argument to be a substance dualist, you kind of do it at a great cost that you might be the only mind that exists that you can prove. There are some attempts at sort of saving the substance dualist position. Um, an obvious one is to sort of make an analogy and say, okay, I don't, I can't ever get to the mind in you. I can't ever do a, a cogito from your point of view because I'll never be your consciousness. But I can look at other people that are like me and kind of make some sort of analogy and go, well, you seem to do all the things that I do. I've got a mind. My mind causes me to do those things. Why would you be doing those things without having a mind? You're like me. I'm conscious. You must be conscious. There's a kind of analogous argument. If that works as an analogy, um, and the big problem, well, there's various problems with that, which is I'm begging the question again of my analogy. I am assuming the only possible thing that makes you do all these things is a mind because it makes me do those things. I can access my mind and know it's there to know that that's the thing that's doing it. But that crucial part that says you're analogous to me is the very thing I'm trying to prove in my analogy and I can't get to it just by watching you. Even if I watch you know, as many humans as possible, they could all not have a mind. I could be the only one still. And the analogy itself doesn't get to the point of proving that you have a mind like me. It's also something on the spec. There's um, Anita Avramides has a, a point, I guess, more than an argument, but a, a point that if you wanted to use the argument from analogy, it's certainly not an, an argument that Descartes uses um, because Descartes doesn't have this problem because Descartes' entire argument, as Mabel said, has God involved. So Descartes has another mind already. He's got God, this purely you know spiritual thing. And also we have minds because God gave us minds. So if there's a human being, that's a being made by God. God puts minds in human beings, um, only in human beings, as we've been told. So if I can see another human being, as Descartes does at one point in the meditation, he's looking out of his window. Descartes doesn't make an analogy and go like, oh, they're a bit like me and I've got a mind. You know, once you finish the argument and you've got God and God is no deceiver and I can trust my senses and I know, you know what, what a mind is and it's given to me by God, then I'm, I'm fine. I don't have a problem with other minds because I know that if you're a human, you've got a mind. Um, the problem is you have to believe in the God bit and you have to have all that sort of metaphysics of God stuff supporting the claim that humans uh, are conscious because a divine creator created them and gave them that. And we just know by the very essence of being a human being that you have a mind. Um, if you don't want to subscribe to the theistic sort of metaphysics, you're left trying to find another way. So the best thing you're left with, I guess, well, you're left with two things. You could say it's the best hypothesis. You could say, okay, I'll never know for sure that the thing that's causing all this behavior in other people is a mind, but it does seem maybe the most likely hypothesis for certain things, especially things where it seems like the behavior is thinking behavior, stuff that's purely mental. You know, if someone is sat there doing a maths problem, there's very little sort of external behavior, but sort of the best explanation for what they're doing 
It's maybe their thinking. And if you could make a case that this is a, is an inference, the best explanation for all the external things that there's a mind and it wouldn't make sense without a mind, then maybe you've got a case for the minds. But it's worth pointing out in terms of those best hypotheses and what is the best explanation is if you're a physicalist and you think the mind and the brain are the same thing, we do know people have brains. And this isn't a problem because I can just see the brain, know you've got a mind, and that explains your behavior perfectly. You do have a mind and I know it because you've got a brain. So if you want to maintain your substance dualism and you're inferring to the best explanation, it feels like, is it the best explanation if you could explain it far more simply by saying, well, that thing we do know you have is what's causing it, that brain. So it's a big sort of can of worms for the substance dualist to maintain substance dualism and knowledge of other minds. You kind of can know you're a dualist in your own mind and body, but other people might not be conscious. Um, Or you can accept that they are conscious because they've got brains and that's what the mind is and lose substance dualism. That's great. Thanks very much, Dan. So let's go through another issue before we start evaluating all of this stuff. Who wants to take on interaction problems? So the interaction problems come out in the specification reading. Uh, You'll see that one of the the spec points of reading a correspondence between um, Descartes and Princess Elizabeth of Bohemia. And um, the spec quite helpfully gives a a link to all the PDFs, but you do have to make sure to scroll down to the bottom of the link on the spec to get the right letters. Otherwise, you will be reading the wrong ones for ages, as my students found out. Um, This is basically uh, the issue of, of interaction comes out because Descartes is so adamant that the mind and the body interact. And and as as Dan said earlier, with the problem of other minds, you know, Descartes does such a good job of separating the the mind from the body. You've got the mind existing in this other realm. So how could it possibly cause the physical to move? How could it possibly interact? So there is a a causal gap almost between what Descartes says in terms of the distinctness between body and mind and you know, his adamance that they do interact. And this is explained, as I said, um, in his correspondence with Princess Olivia, uh, Elizabeth of Bohemia. And she identifies two main issues with Descartes' interaction. So the first we'll look at is the conceptual issue. So Elizabeth, Princess Elizabeth, comes up with the conceptual issue. Uh, she basically talks about cause and effect in the conceptual issue. So think of it as concept of cause and effect. So she talks about the fact that, you know, if you have uh, dominoes, for instance, and you you knock them, a physical thing has to knock those dominoes in order for the physical reaction of those dominoes to be knocked over. Okay, so she, she says physical things are the only things that can cause physical things to move, basically. Um, you need a physical cause to a physical movement. She then says to Descartes, she said, you just said that the mind has no extension. So how could the mind with no extension possibly cause a physical thing to move? Okay. Therefore, the mind cannot cause the body to move. So that's her conceptual issue, the concept of of cause and effect, the, the concept of physical things having to be pushed by extended things and the mind being non-extended means that they cannot cause the body to move. 
again, there's a there's a back and forth and and to get those really high level answers, go to the spec, read read it in full. You know, Descartes does uh, respond. He responds by talking about how the fact that she's got a misunderstanding of kind of the the unextended. So she's got a misunderstanding of it. So she's like, okay. Uh, and then she comes up with the empirical problem. So the empirical problem is based on the universe being a closed system, and it's based on the conservation of energy. So as you can tell, students, she's a very well-educated individual. I think you'd have to be a princess in this time to be a woman this well-educated, and especially have this kind of correspondence with one of the biggest mathematicians and philosophers at the time. Um, so uh, she talks about the empirical problem if the universe is a closed system, which is generally accepted by physics, even, even today, the universe is a closed system um, because of Newton's laws and things like that. Um, you can't possibly have things outside of a closed system affecting things within a closed system. So it would create, it would essentially be arguing that you're creating energy. Um, again, Descartes comes back and says physics is not a complete picture, doesn't account for things like consciousness and the mind. But ultimately, I do think that Princess Elizabeth of Bohemia has some really good points, even today. Bear in mind, these correspondence were happening, you know, 1600s. She's got that conceptual issue. She's got that empirical issue. And the only response she's getting from Descartes is him essentially saying, you just don't understand it enough. He doesn't provide too much more than uh, to the conceptual problem, saying... Um, Cartesian dualism says it's silly to constrain the mind in terms of the body. And then to the empirical problem, he just says physics is not a complete picture. It doesn't account for it, but he doesn't actually go into further how these things can cause to move or how these things can come into a closed system. He just essentially calls her silly for, for even asking the question, daring to challenge him. That's great. Thanks, Mabel. And we've got one more thing we wanted to get through. Um, so I think this is, uh, we're about to go on a tour of a university with Gilbert Ryle. Uh, who wants to talk about this one? Ben? So again, I think it's handy, the stuff Mabel was talking about there, because the, um, and, and again, the stuff that Dan was on about, we can kind of tie all this together a little bit to some extent. When Descartes is responding to, when he's responding to Elizabeth, he does actually kind of say he's right he's sort of saying he's even this roundabout sort of way he's saying oh you know people really misunderstand what we say and they sometimes make these crazy claims like such and such and such and such and he says you know in our philosophy one of the first things that we've got to do is make sure that we separate all our ideas out kind of put separate all the concepts out and think about them in isolation so that we get a nice clear idea of what they really are so we don't get all muddled and philosophers are really really bad at muddling up their concepts so that they're in the wrong place and thinking about one thing in terms of another. And, you know, you might, for example, start thinking about the mind as if it were a physical object. And that would be a silly mistake, wouldn't it? Because it would you would be applying physical laws to a non-physical thing. You know, so he's weirdly, if you kind of like before you even get to the bit of the course where, where we're talking about this, we've already looked at Descartes sort of accusing. Um, Elizabeth of making a category mistake or a category error that what Gilbert Ryle um, talks about then ironically is how pretty much the whole of Cartesian philosophy and everything that we've done since is based around this category error 
in the philosophy of mind. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, Riley's coming from a tradition. Again, he's coming from that analytic tradition in the 20th century, which is really interested, as Dan mentioned before, with the idea of language about the mind. So before we start trying to decide what the mind is, let's have a think about the language that we use when we talk about the mind and make sure that it's nice and clear. Now, um, Ryle isn't from the old logical positivist school, so he's not talking about what's verifiable or, or, or any of those sorts of things. He's approaching it from a much more ordinary language. How do we use terms, mental terms, in daily life? Because, and I think we've talked about this elsewhere, how there are those philosophers that treat things very analytically and put them on the, the dissecting table and break up arguments and uh, break up language in a very almost scientific mathematical sort of way and then there are those that go no 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 you want to see language out in the wild you want to go and see it out where it really exists and how it really evolved riley's very much of that second school how does language function kind of in in a normal context before philosophers kind of take it away and start dissecting it and maybe not really understanding how it works in a normal environment and his argument really is that when you look at Descartes, he's made a series of errors. There's a, this a huge chunky chapter where he kind of like talks through all of the errors that Descartes made. But the, the what the big one is that Descartes is effectively placed mental language, language concerning the mind, into the wrong logical category, so the wrong linguistic category or set of concepts, if you like. So we can do all sorts of kind of examples of this, but the the one, one of the famous ones that he obviously uses is that let's say that we get a tour of Oxford University. Um, Oxford being a, a city university, so it's made up of several different colleges, so separate buildings with separate faculties and all these sorts of things scattered all over the city, even though they're run by kind of like a central organization, a central uh, kind of board, institution, set of rules, financing, all that sort of stuff. So you may think about the same if you if you go to a college with multiple campuses. It's effectively like that. So Ryle imagines that uh, you know somebody's been taken on a tour of all of you know of Oxford University, and they're taken to see all the all the colleges, and they're taken to see the finance offices, and maybe they go and see um, some of the you know the, some of the faculty offices, some of the um, some of the staff, and so on. Maybe they meet the student body, all these sorts of things. But ultimately, at the end of this, they go, that was brilliant. I really enjoyed going and visiting all those colleges and offices and things. But where's the university? When do we get to see the university? What that person's done is taken the, the concept of university, which is just the name that we give to this overall institution and the interconnection between these colleges and so on, and treated it as if it were a thing in itself, something which could be understood in isolation. So they've misunderstood the kind of terminology that's being used and they've attributed it in the wrong place, which now completely affects the way that they think about that thing and the way that they conceptualize it, talk about it, argue about it, whatever it might be. So he's arguing that Descartes basically done the same. He's arguing that what Descartes done is he has um, started off with thinking about the mind and the body. He's understood that there are certain things true of um, the body, that is, that it exists as part of a particular substance, that, you know, it's kind of like material substance um, or that it is a substance itself, that it's got particular properties, um, particular qualities, that it'll obviously, obviously have certain kind of laws that run it, that make it work, certain principles that are true of it and so on. 
And the mind is different. So if the mind is going to be different to a body, then it must also have its own substance and it must also have its own kinds of properties and it must also have its own um, principles and rules that govern how it works, that it will have a special form of causation that is involved in what causes mental states and what causes mental states to interact. Now notice what he's done is exactly what he sort of complained about Elizabeth doing here. He's thought about what a physical substance is like and what kinds of features physical substances have and the kinds of activities that physical substances undertake. And he's then just transposed those over into the mental. The mental must have its own all of this. So even if you think about something like causation, causation makes perfect sense when you're talking about physical stuff. But then when you're talking about thoughts and things, there's an order to them and so on. But he's, he would think of them, of them in terms of cause and effect. Now, cause and effect is something that we know from the physical. So to bung it over into something non-physical would seem to be acting in error. Now, the whole point is that it's not just that these kind of ideas are kind of like misplaced. It's that the very foundation for it all is a problem. He's thinking effectively, he's thinking about the mind as a thing. He's thinking of it as if it is an object of some sort, that my body houses this thing called a mind somewhere in the brain. In fact, he's, he's you know, he's where he's going to say, but and it's kind of spread throughout my body it extends through my body and so on but it's this thing in me which already gives it kind of like a sort of slightly spatial kind of dimension it gives it a sort of pseudo physical sort of idea which means that you can't really speak of it in purely mental terms in the way that Descartes wants to and the point that Ryle is trying to make is that we shouldn't even necessarily spend our time now trying to come up with the right rules for how to describe a mental substance because he's only thinking of it as a substance because he's confused the categories in the first place that you don't need a mental substance, that you don't need mental properties kind of as a properties of a mental substance and special mental laws and all this sort of stuff because the whole thing is thinking of concepts to do with the mind as if they were understood in terms of the physical, but in a sort of analogous sort of way. And so what he wants us, what you'll see in the, the episode on behaviorism is he wants us to really step away from that and go, all talk of the mind is based on a category error. It's based upon thinking of the mind as this thing that requires a special substance and its own properties and its own laws and so on. And the reason that we think of it like that is because Descartes misunderstood the way those concepts and ideas really worked. And I think that gives you then a route into discussing the problem of other minds to some degree as well. Because when I say, how do I know other people have a mind? I'm effectively asking, how do I know that that ghost in the machine, which is inside me, as, as Ryle calls it, I, I'm thinking of myself as a ghost inside a machine. How do I know that other people have got the ghost in the machine? Well, the point is, I don't have the ghost in the machine. That's the problem. So we don't, I don't even have to try and prove that other people have got that because I'm thinking of myself in the wrong way using a, using an incorrect set of categories. Okay, thanks, Ben. Uh, that was really helpful and detailed. So we've been through substance dualism, thought about Descartes' arguments, thought about the problems with those. 
and then put a number of other issues on the table. Um, we've just heard about um, problem of category error just there, but we've had problems of other minds and interaction as well. And so now it's time for us to kind of evaluate where we are. Um, Descartes tends to get a, a good kicking, uh, both in history of philosophy uh, and also uh, in contemporary philosophy of mind about all of this stuff. Um, what do you guys think about it? I think the kicking is deserved, but there's still good to get from it. So I think it's good because it does seem to be intuitively most people sort of before they've done any philosophy on it, sort of feeling about mind. You know, if you, whenever I ask students about you know their views on the mind or what they think a mind is, they do tend to describe themselves, whether they're religious or not, and they're thinking of souls. Um, you know, it doesn't matter to have this thing inside them that is not their body. Even if they don't believe that their their mind will continue after their physical death, they do seem to have a sense that there is more to them than just the brain in their head. The problem is, despite that intuition being true, you know, not all intuitions should be honoured. And there's a lot, obviously, we, we're raised in societies that talk about souls and the idea of self has been a sort of construct that maybe we've internalised this idea from, from outside of ourselves by the time you get to school and study A-level philosophy. So the fact that people have it as an intuition doesn't necessarily mean it should be taken seriously, but it is a, it is a, it is a gut feeling that we seem to have. So that kind of instinct is something that it takes seriously as an idea. But what it then does, as we've hopefully shown, is when you take that seriously and you go, right, so there is this thing and it's different from the body, it kind of comes apart a bit because the way you try and separate the two doesn't seem to really work conceptually. I mean, you know you're onto a loser uh, with Descartes when you realise he gives you two arguments because if the first argument was any good, he wouldn't need the second one. It's always a principle with philosophers you should take to heart. If they give you two arguments for the same thing, especially in this case where they're basically doing the exact same thing, you know, it didn't work the first time. Don't try and fool me by giving me the same argument a second time. But I actually do think the approach is what we should take from it. Because if we have that intuition, if we have that instinct, maybe Descartes got it wrong with extension. Maybe Descartes got it wrong with this idea of like pure thought versus something, you know, divisible and indivisible and stuff like that. But if there is something that is irreducible to the physical, there is something there that is that thing we're talking about that feels like there's more to us than our body that we can't just say, and that's just the brain or that's just the same thing. That instinct could be the thing that might explain that intuition. And maybe it's not a dualism of substances. Maybe it's not a dualism at all. But if we can explain that feeling and separate those two things and say there is maybe something that's not the same as the physical, then maybe there is a dualism, but it's just not substance dualism. And if we can't separate it, but we can explain it, then we can explain the sensation, but realise that there doesn't need to be two things and we can have a monism of some sort, like physicalism. So I think, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an important theory. It's important to give it the kicking it's got to see what's good about it. And what, what I think is good is that idea that maybe there is something about our sort of mental life that can't just be reduced into the physical world. First of all, I can only echo what uh, what Dan was saying there. I think it's exactly right. But I, th I think the other bit that, if I was going to add anything, I suppose that the bit that always kind of gets me when we're looking at philosophy of mind, mainly from 
so, some physicalist perspectives, I will, I will admit, but like from a lot of dualist perspectives, I think Descartes is probably one of the most overtly kind of guilty of this, is that we is that there is also an intuition that we wholeheartedly accept when you say to anybody that you can be wrong about the outside world, but you, you can't be wrong about your own inside world. You know, you say that the sky is blue, the sky might not be blue, but you can't deny that what you're seeing is blue. You know, that kind of epistemological stuff that we were, you know, looking at previously. I think the big thing that, that stands out is the possibility that the more that we learn about the brain and the more that we learn about the mind, the possibility that maybe actually introspection isn't that good. Maybe introspection doesn't actually tell us. We don't have this infallible view of what's going on inside our minds, that we're possibly as as kind of deceived and, and not from by evil demons or anything, but just like just as wrong about the way things appear to us in introspection as we do when we use perception. And I think that if we're just focusing on substance dualism, a lot of substance dualism is based on just this kind of intuitive, well, there seems to be something there and it seems to be not physical. And I don't see how it could be a physical thing. It just doesn't seem to make sense how loads of neurons could generate this incredibly complicated thing, which is me. And then the more we do cognitive science and the more we do, the more we do brain science and the more we, we study psychology, actually, the more we realize that the brain is is horrendously complicated. And so, you know, saying that it couldn't produce something like, you know, consciousness or whatever it might be is just a failing of our of our understanding that we're just incredibly naive, maybe. But also this idea, but yes, but I've got this this idea of myself which could never be wrong. Actually, there's loads of stuff about ordinary everyday perceptions or about our introspection, which our brain is just kind of making up and kind of retroactively sort of telling us about, yeah, yeah, you definitely saw this. You definitely saw this when we didn't, we, we didn't at all. There was no way we, we could have done. And there's tons of, I suppose the, the place to look, if you're not going to look at psychology, but regardless of whether or not you follow his conclusions, there's tons of writing about these sorts of experiments about how, yeah, you, you don't really have that good an idea of yourself in books like consciousness explained by Daniel Dennett, where he just goes through, tons and tons of examples of experiments where people go, they'll swear blind that they saw this thing and that they can't be wrong because it was in their conscious mind, but they didn't and they couldn't have done. And and then when they try and report back on, look, you didn't see that. Why do you think your mind showed you that when it wasn't really there? They either can't give an answer, which they should be able to if it's that indubitable if it's right there in front of you or they just kind of like pick an explanation from the ones that are being given they just can't go oh, i don't know i guess it was kind of like this so i think that one of the big things other than all the other stuff is that a lot of those intuitions about the usefulness of introspection which dualism really really relies upon are not necessarily that set in stone actually yeah i to be fair descartes very excellent man, excellent mathematician, you know, universalizing maths was a real feat. And I kind of, sometimes I do think this, this such a brilliant man with, you know, arguably such weak arguments, maybe we are missing something. Because each one of his arguments he gives are just, well, you're not quite hearing what I'm saying. You know, even to the metaphysically possible, he responds with, I don't think you're hearing when I say clearly and distinctly, guys. He's like, I don't think you're quite 
quite getting that, picking up what I'm putting down. So I do think, you know, maybe there there's something if he had the the maybe neuroscientific tools that we have now, maybe this would be the thing. But I just I don't think you can you can reconcile it in our current developing physical world. You know, Descartes was living at a time where it was materialism, not physicalism, because you didn't have the studies of gravity in quite the same way. You didn't have the same kind of studies of various electromagnetic fields and things like that. So, you know, moving to physics and physicalism, I think would have been quite interesting to see what he would have done in this scope. I agree with Dan. You know, it's it's intuitive. It allows for interaction. We do think we have interaction. And even property dualism, which we'll look at later, doesn't necessarily have the same emphasis on interaction. You could argue it does, but you, you've got to make the argument. One thing I find quite interesting that I kind of wanted to get your guys' view on as well is the generational shift. Because I find Gen Z and the students that I've kind of taken through in current years definitely very physicalist. They don't seem seem to have any issue kind of comprehending the world in, in physics. Whereas if anything, I do a little bit. I, I like to have that kind of, oh, I do have something about me. And I don't know if that's a if that's a generational thing or or what what do you guys find? I mean, all of my students it seem to be wherever wherever I've taught and whatever age they are, they, they seem to still majoritively have some sense about themselves. When you go through the arguments, they they tend to be happy to be physicalist at some point when some things have been dismissed, but their first gut feeling still seems to be there's more to me than that. And I do think quite a lot of them still hang on to that that idea of a self. I don't know, is that just I happen to be in schools that are like that? I think it's kind of tricky saying it kind of too broadly, but I think that I think my the students that I teach are kind of happy to dismiss Descartes because they're fed up with him by the second year. They they just don't want to see any more Descartes ever again. And largely because they're sick of how much they didn't like his arguments in the first year. It's not like with David Hume. When, whenever you reintroduce David Hume, they're like, yay, more David Hume. But then like with Descartes, they're like, oh, him again, he's so bad. And, which I don't, you know, and I try and teach him really enthusiastically going, no, no, here's how important this guy is. But I think that they they're happy to dismiss Descartes, but then I think the the response is either it doesn't mean that we necessarily want to get rid of the idea of there's more to us than this. Um, I think they're happy to lean towards property dualism, some of them, because then when you look at the people who are property dualists, they're very sympathetic towards aspects of physicalism, like they you you can kind of have your cake and eat it a little bit, which will obviously will will see in the future i think some of them find it depressing that maybe substance dualism's wrong and i kind of have to sort of beat that out of them a little bit just go it doesn't matter like <laughs> you know the metaphysics doesn't care about your feelings but like, <laughs> but um but other than that you know that that you know once you've got over that bit i think that they're they're kind of yeah there is there is a slight I don't know whether it's generational too much, but certainly they're they're happy to get rid of Descartes. I think I've got a nihilistic bunch then. Religiosity, I think, because there does you do lose the possibility of an afterlife uh, if you don't uh, subscribe to some form of substance dualism. If the substance is a mind or a soul, you know you need something non-physical to continue after your physical death. So I think if you've got students 
who have any kind of faith that there is something about them that will continue reincarnate whatever it is they're not going to necessarily get rid of that belief just because Descartes was wrong and that's going to be the thing that they they cling to which actually can make the course maybe a bit more difficult for those students if they think these arguments don't work but they still hold these beliefs aren't going to ever be sympathetic to the purely physicalist type ideas anything that gets rid of or makes uh, that mental life sort of dependent on a physical thing that we know dies would would have to conclude therefore you don't have an afterlife so i think that seems to be the thing that that maybe i've got more students who even if they're not that religious externally clearly have some worry <laughs> that they've got to cling on to some sense of non-physical self or else that's it when they die mm. and i think the the nerdy logic bit behind that is that there's there's not necessarily anything inherently wrong with them saying descartes arguments are wrong but that doesn't prove that substance dualism is wrong but there is something wrong with saying descartes arguments are wrong but you know i can still cling to substance dualism being right which is slightly different which is a very different thing i can still believe it's right even though i don't have any arguments supporting it there's a i suppose from the philosophy teacher's point of view that's the nah come on we gotta we gotta make sure that we got our conditionals the right way around and all that business you know Thanks, Ben. Uh, and thanks, thanks all for asking that really interesting question at the end. Uh, I think we're going to leave things there. We've covered a huge amount of ground in this episode. Uh, I hope you've all enjoyed it. Uh, we should say thank you to our guests for coming on. So first of all, thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. And thanks to you, Ben. Cheers. Thank you, everybody. And Mabel, thanks to you as well. Thank you very much for having me also. And thanks to you for listening. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, Hopefully we'll uh, see you again soon for another episode of Philosophy Gets Schooled.